1: to Clubhouse
0: Conversation.
1: Hello, it's Devo. Glad you are along for another edition of Clubhouse Conversation, where we talk to all your favorite current and former Royals players. And today, it's quite the underdog story from Mike Kingery and quite the inspirational story from Mike Kingery as well. Now, Kingery grew up in a small town in Minnesota called Atwater, And would you believe he didn't have a single Division I college baseball scholarship offer on the table? Not a single D1 team was recruiting Mike Kingery when Art Stewart happened to see him play and sign him as an amateur free agent in 1979. Quite the find by Art Stewart although that's not surprising with as many as he's done for the Royals organization. But Kingery would go on to spend seven years in the Royals minor league system before making his big league debut in KC in 1986. He finished out that season with the Royals, but then was involved in that Danny Tartable trade with the Seattle Mariners, and that started a career that saw Kingery play with the Mariners, Giants, Athletics, Rockies, and Pirates, a lefty outfielder who nearly won a batting title while with the Colorado Rockies, and he has quite the story, Mike Kingery, who joins us on Clubhouse Conversation from his hometown of Atwater, Minnesota. Mike, thanks for joining us, and how are you doing?
0: Good. It's getting a little nippy, but uh, supposed to be down to 35 tonight at our house, but everything is going well.
1: Yikes. Yikes. That time of year, man, the chills in the air. So you're a busy man these days uh, between the Solid Foundation Baseball School. You run uh, you know, Motivational Speaking. You have that as well. So let's kind of go through those one by one. First of all, tell us about uh, the Mike Kingery Solid Foundation Baseball School.
0: Well, after I retired from baseball, we did not necessarily know what we were going to do and had several parents come up and ask if I would teach baseball to their to their sons, and it just one thing led to another. I did some research and found out that maybe I would be reasonably good at this, so we started doing that, and that was 17 years ago, and we've continued to do it. We deal with kids in very small groups, so the largest group that we allow for our training is three kids in a group, so people can either come privately or a group of two or a group of three, so we don't have hordes of kids there so it makes it where you can deal a little bit more individually or a little bit more one-on-one so each student that you deal with kind of has their own particular things that they need to work on so as I tell parents we don't come from a, a hitting 101 standpoint or hitting 201 standpoint it's we come from a we teach hitting to your child and wherever your child is at the time that we see your child is where we try to take your child from and build upon that, so it's been enjoyable, it's very satisfying to work with people who actually want to get better, and we deal with kids who would not be the most successful on their team, and we deal with some kids who are very skilled, so we kind of deal with the gamut, and it's been enjoyable.
1: Yeah, it's got to be rewarding. Now, you're also doing motivational speaking as well, and I know you're a man of faith who really wants to help others and live a life that Christ would be proud of, obviously. So, so tell us how much helping others through motivational speaking means to you and how fun that's been for you.
0: Well, to be honest with you, I have not been asked tons to speak recently. Once you're out of the public eye, you don't get asked as much to be a public speaker, at least from my standpoint. So I spoke many times actually in Kansas City. I spoke many times uh, just as as a player. I actually had to set a limit of how much I would speak during the wintertime because there was so many requests. Now there's not near as many, but I do it periodically, not frequently. But that being said, the biggest thing as far as reaching out to people that we do is more as a family than as me as an individual. And my family has a gospel bluegrass band and we sing about 50 times a year and mostly in the Minnesota area. But we have went to sing in Denver, and we sing in Texas, we sing in Arkansas, and a few other states, but for the most part, it's in the Minnesota area. So, as I tell people, we have eight children, two of them are married, so we have two son-in-laws and now four grandchildren, and on Sunday when we sang locally, we had all but one person there with us singing that night and that was my one son-in-law who served in the marine reserves and he had drill that weekend so we had all eight children, we had one son-in-law and four grandchildren and so I always tell people that my testimony of my walk with Christ is multiple now just because I have my children with me and my wife and that's really an enjoyable thing and sometimes we will do both at the same time, where I'll do some speaking and we'll do some singing at the same time. So it's we're quite flexible on, on what we do, but that's, that's way more enjoyable than me just speaking individually.
1: Yeah, so cool. You're, you're a busy man these days. Can we hear your music online or buy it online or anything anywhere down here in KC?
0: Yeah, you would go to thekingeryfamily.com So Kingery is Dot com, and we have three cds for sale there and we actually have never sang in kansas city but it would be something we'd love to do and yeah so if someone's listening they want to get a hold of us they can get a hold of us on that website and it's you know we also you can go on youtube and do the kingery family and you'll see a few things there also
1: awesome well now so getting into baseball do you have much time to follow baseball these days and have you seen how the royals are doing
0: course I've seen how the Royals are doing and you know I've been six different teams I do have a special place in my heart for the Royals just because it was the first team that I came up to the major leagues with and it was a team that I spent the majority of my minor league time with and very grateful to the you know Dick Balderson was the farm director when I was there and several people, Art Stewart, who signed me, and just a lot of people who invested in my life as far as coaches. I had several coaches. I had two coaches, the most in the minor leagues. One was Rick Matthews, and the other one was Roy Tanner, and very grateful for their influence in my life. So I I always have a special place in my heart for the Royals. My family, my children actually probably follow it more than I do, and so sometimes when we sing, we'll do Take Me Out to the Ball Game, and (laughs) being from Minnesota, I'll jokingly say, you know, we dedicate this to the Minnesota Twins, but recently we've been going, well, the Twins are so far gone, so my kids are telling me all the teams that I'm supposed to dedicate it to, and the Royals (laughs) always come up as one of them, and the Pirates always come up as one of them, because that was my last team. And the Rockies and all that so it's enjoyable but yes we've been watching uh, the last four games haven't been as well as I would like them to be for the the Royals but uh, hopefully they'll get back in a hot streak baseball is a game that goes through lots of runs and hopefully they got done with their last little funk here the last four days and hopefully they can get back on track
1: Amen. Touche. So so let's go back and talk about how it all started. Like you mentioned, you signed with the Royals as a free agent. But before we talk about that, so you grew up in Atwater, Minnesota. So for somebody that's never been there, how big is the town? Where is it at? And then your family owned a bowling alley. So I'm assuming you were probably a good bowler growing up too?
0: Atwater is a town of 1,000 people. It is an hour and a half straight west of Minneapolis on U.S. Highway 12. It is... There were 60 kids in my graduating class, which I think we had one of the two or three biggest classes ever, and we moved to Atwater when I was about four or five months old, and the reason that we moved there is my father always wanted to own a bowling alley, and the city of Atwater, the business culture in Atwater, built a bowling alley hoping someone would come and buy it, and that was my father. And him and my mother ran the thing for 25 years, and they sold it to my three oldest brothers, and they ran it for another 10 years. So it was in the Kingery family for 35 years. And to answer your question about whether I was a good bowler, of the six males in my family, I would have been the worst. (laughs) And I... uh, I, but I, I, I'm not saying I was bad, because I averaged 180, but my oldest brother was crazy good. And this was, you know, the bowling averages now, I don't know if you pay attention, but it's a whole lot easier to score high now than it used to be. And my brother bowled 10-300s before he died, oh, wow. and he was a big influence. He was my oldest brother, and he was the one that I always looked up to. He played—he played He played three sports in college, and... And so but he was a really really to mention me and him in the same statement that bowling would be a disgrace to his name right so but i was I was obviously above average, but that was definitely I was really good when I was probably fifth or sixth grade, but then I started on the high school baseball team as an eighth grader and also lettered in high school and track as an 8th grader so I kind of got involved in a lot of the other things yeah, and I still bowled but not as frequently.
1: Yeah, it would have messed up your baseball swing, right? <laughs> 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 That's what you can tell people. So, yeah. you mentioned your brother Doug, obviously you lost him way too young, uh, but I've read that he just was a huge influence for you as a baseball player too. Talk about him a little bit.
0: Brother Doug, 11 years older than me but took me everywhere he went. So when he was 20 years old and was playing amateur baseball, I was the bat boy. When he was 20 years old and they started a local slow pitch softball team, I was the bat boy. And there's not a whole lot of guys that are college age that want to drag their nine-year-old brother around with them. Right. And I loved to shag balls. They, you know, the guys on the softball team loved it that there was a kid out there who loved to run after the balls. And I think that it really helped me in my development because I got used to seeing fly balls, et cetera, et cetera. But just the fact that my brother wanted me there with him was not normal. And so he was very influential. Doug was... Doug would have been a professional bowler if he would have had the drive that his younger brother had. And so I have the Atwater Ford owner, he'll come up to me every once in a while and he'll go, I just want you to know the best athlete ever from Atwater was a kingery, but his first name was not Mike. (laughs) And I'm okay with it. He was my hero, so I'm okay with it. But he did it because it was just enjoyable to him. I enjoyed sports, but I wanted to win. I was the one who would get up at 6.30 in the morning and lift weights and run and do all these things that Doug wouldn't do that as much. But I did it because I was very driven and wanted to be the best that I could be in that arena of my life.
1: Well, it paid off. I mean, like you mentioned earlier, Art Stewart, who's now in the Royals Hall of Fame, kind of discovered you and found you. So the moment you first met him, what do you remember about that? And how did he find you?
0: We were in the state American Legion baseball tournament, which was in Wilmer, which was only 12 miles further west of Atwater. And I was actually more recruited to play college football than to play college baseball. And it was probably the first week in August, somewhere in that vicinity, and I still did not know where I was going to go to college, and obviously I had graduated. I was kind of driving some of the local college football coaches crazy because I just couldn't make a decision, and nothing just felt like it was the right thing to do, so we're probably only a week before the start of college football practice, and we're in the states Legion tournament and all of a sudden here during the game Art Stewart comes up to me and he says the next ball you hit, he said, I don't care where you hit it, he said, I want you to run the first base as fast as you can so he wanted to clock me going from home to first and so he clocked me after the tournament was over, he came up to me and he said, I want to come to Atwater and I want to see you throw from the outfield because I pitched more than anything in the tournament and so I worked it out, brought one of my friends with to hit fly balls, and he hit me fly balls and I threw some balls from the outfield and Art basically said, I'd like to sign you. And then I went, okay, that's why none of the college things felt proper because I was supposed to sign to play professional baseball. So I signed as a very wide-eyed 18 year old who wasn't even asked by any Division 1 schools to play baseball I only had one D2 school that wanted me and that was South Dakota State which they're now a D1 but when I went to high school they were D2 and I signed right out of high school with a professional team so when I explain that to people they kind of go that makes no sense (laughs) and I would agree with them it makes no sense but God had a wonderful plan and I was able to survive professionally for 17 years longer than probably anybody thought and I knew that I was given a special chance here and I wanted to make the most of it and I was able to learn from a lot of really good coaching the royals were a huge on their minor league system and i was able to really learn a lot and really had to restructure a lot in my in my game because i was raw would be a nice word
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's funny well if you signed with kc you began your professional career in 1980 with the gulf coast royals now you mentioned roy tanner earlier You played for him there. You were also teammates of another future big leaguer and Royal Scout, Bob Hegman. So what do you remember about that first year of pro ball in 1980?
0: The first year of pro ball in 1980, I realized how good I wasn't. (laughs) And I was fast, and I could throw well. My hitting was very raw. I was a very good hitter in high school, but guys were throwing 75 miles an hour, all of a sudden I go down there and I'm facing the people from Arizona and Arizona State, which were the best when I was in professional baseball as far as colleges, and all of a sudden 90 miles an hour is slow, and I've only seen 90 mile an hour once in my life, and that was a guy who played professional baseball from Wilmer. and. It just was culture shock, to be honest with you. I did not like it. I called my dad and my second oldest brother, Bob, about, I don't know if I made, I probably made it through spring training before I called them. And I said I wanted to come home, I was going to quit, and even got to the point where my dad had actually even talked with Dick Balderson about what happens if I go home and it actually turned out where I could've played even though I had played professional baseball for a month or so, I could have went back and played junior college baseball but I couldn't have played at a four year. And so my dad and my brother talked me into staying, left a car down there for me. I was a four sport athlete in high school and then all of a sudden to just be one sport was very difficult for me at the beginning. And the complex out in Sarasota at the time was out in the middle of absolutely nowhere. The closest thing was probably about three-quarters of a mile away. It was a 7-Eleven grocery store, hmm. convenience store. And I would walk down there every night to get a big gulp and a, a burrito or something. And besides that, it was baseball, baseball, baseball. And some of your listeners will go, man, that's what I've always dreamed about. (laughs) And I would say, yes, I dreamed about it also. But once you actually live it and you realize, you know, when you sign, you're kind of wet under the ears. You don't understand the intricate details of professional baseball. I was in the complex in Sarasota. There was four rooms in the middle of the complex that all of – there was rooms that housed – four people in each room, two bunk beds. And then there was these four annex rooms in the middle that held eight people. And I was in one of those annex rooms, and I remember the first time that I came back from one of the spring training practices, and the person whose bed was next to mine was packing his gear. And I go, where are you going? And he goes, well, they released me. And I'm like, what? Well, they told me that they don't want me anymore. And by the time training was over there was only four of us eight still remaining and that's when I realized that yes this is enjoyable yes this is a game but it was a business also and that was a little shocking to me and so I it was very difficult at the very beginning but thankfully actually uh, you brought up my relationship with christ i came to know the lord about a month after spring training started and that really transformed my life not only spiritually but in my occupation and it made it where now i wanted to please god and so i was going to do everything that i could do personally to become the best baseball player that i could be and it really changed my focus because you you're in an occupation which, you know, your value and your worth is really how you perform. And then all of a sudden to meet a God who is wanting all of you and he's going to love you whether you strike out or whether you get a home run. And that really freed me up and it helped me to, to just have my perspective better. And so I was in spring training. All of the teams left spring training, but about 20 of us guys who stayed for what they called extended spring training, which meant we weren't good enough to go to a team, right. but we weren't bad enough to send home. And not bad enough, but they thought that there might be a possibility for some future type thing. So I stayed there for extended spring, and then in June after the draft, That's when all of the guys came in, and then we played rookie ball. So in extended spring training, we were actually on a team with the New York Yankees.
1: Oh, that's cool. So we
0: made a team together. Hoyt Wilhelm was one of my coaches, and it just made it where they had enough players to play. And then we went to the rookie ball came, and that's when Bob Hagman came because he got drafted in June, out of St. Cloud State in Minnesota and that's when I was actually going through practice and someone came up to me and says, You know our new shortstop is from Minnesota? And I just I remember right away walking out into the field and go, You're from Minnesota? <laughs> and he goes, Yeah, I'm from Saint Cloud and we became best friends. I was actually stood up with him at his wedding and it we became best friends him and Jim Eisenreich Uh another former royal he uh, and Bob and I used to work out in the wintertime at St. Cloud State after all three of us met each other and Bob and Ike played college baseball together so that really helped me a lot to have someone that became a really good friend and we were able to fellowship with each other and just spend time with each other and that helped me a lot.
1: Yeah, having somebody to help you take a deep breath there, I'm assuming. So 1981, you played for the Charleston Royals in beautiful Charleston, South Carolina, with a couple other future Royals like uh, Cliff Pastor. He was on that team. Then in 82, you became a big-time prospect after returning to Charleston a second time. You hit 318. You finished in the top five of a whole bunch of single-season offensive categories. You're also a, a Sally League All-Star that year. So your two seasons in Charleston, what was that like playing there? You know, Because it's obviously not an affiliate anymore. And then your favorite memories of that time of your life.
0: In eighty one I was actually started in extended spring training again and then I got called up because one of the outfielders in Charleston got hurt, so I got called up and played but probably was more the fourth outfielder would be my guess. But I, I played more than what a major league fourth outfielder would play and ended up doing reasonable and nothing to write home about. Came back the next year as the starting right fielder and Cliff Pasternicki was the starting third baseman that year and Cliff had maybe the best year I've ever seen anybody have Really? in my 17 years and I've seen some guys have some really good years but Cliff was just an absolute beast that year and he hit well and fielded well, he had this big barrel chest, and he just, he never sidestepped the ball, he was willing to stand in front of anything, him and I used to play long toss every single day, so became really good friends with Cliff, and spent a lot of time, you know, trying to hone our skills together, but he had a remarkable year, but getting back to one of my two coaches, that's Roy Tanner, I was with him again that year, so that would have been my second year with him, and I was so bad the first six to eight weeks of the season where I was probably hitting about 180, and he put me out there every single day, and whether he was defying Lee, the owner not the ownership but the the front office I don't know because I really wasn't someone that they had a lot invested they paid $2,000 to sign me out of high school so I didn't go out and buy a Datsun 280ZX <laughs> and we just he just kept putting me out there and putting me out there I ended up hitting 318 I had 21 assists from the outfield
1: oh my gosh
0: and which You hardly ever see anyone get 15. And I was 21 in a minor league season, which is about 20 games less than a major league season. And I was not named to the All Star game. But the right fielder who was named got hurt. So Roy Tanner, we had David Cohn and Danny Jackson on the team. So we won the first half because we just could, it was impossible for us to go through a funk because. Two out of every five days, you had those two guys pitching. And I think Jackson was 10-1 and one at halfway through, and Cohn was 9-2 and two at halfway through. So we won the first half. So Roy Tanner, his nickname was T-Bone. So T-Bone uh, was able to pick the reserve, so he put me in right field to take the guy's place, and I played the whole All-Star game also, and I got a triple in the All-Star game. So I played every single inning of every single game that year. And so I owe a lot of that to T-Bone having faith and just putting me out there and letting me go through my struggles. And so I'm very grateful. I do the Christmas card thing with him all the time. And I'm I'm very grateful to, to Roy Tanner's influence.
1: And what a beautiful part of the country Charleston was, too, to play in, I'm sure, back then. It
0: was. It was very picturesque. They... We enjoyed our time in Charleston. It was very hot, June, July, and August. And, you know, my first about five years, it was exceptionally hot almost every day you played, <laughs> in which a player would rather be hot than freezing cold. So, Right. Well,
1: you're used to both. I mean, Minnesota, you get the best of both worlds. So in 83, you mentioned the hot. You're now with Fort Myers Royals. You stole 31 bases then. And so when you look back, was it around that point, or, or what point was it where you actually – in your heart believe that you could play at the major leagues? I mean, by this point, did you think it was possible?
0: I, if you want me to be honest, I would say no. Yeah. Uh, to be honest with you, I was leading the American Association in 1986 and hitting. I know we're jumping years here. Yeah. And still, you just didn't know if you'd ever make it. I, they called up, I believe, three, two or three outfielders before they called up me. And one time the manager actually called me in the office just to explain it because he thought I deserved, and I didn't complain, I was not the complaining type, and he just thought I deserved a a reasoning of why I was not the guy because I had lots I was just doing really well. So anyway, so getting back, I don't know. Every step happened for a reason, and every step helped. Developed me a whole lot more. You know, the Fort Myers year, I had an okay year. I played good defensively, and I and I stole more bases. That's probably the thing that I was the worst at as, as far as my skill set. I should have been way more of a base stealer than I was because I had the speed. If you clocked me going from home to first, I was as fast as anybody, and if you clocked me going from home to third, I... I mean, as fast as anybody until i seen Bo Jackson. And I was very good at certain things. I was good at getting jumps in the outfield, but that, that jump from first to second I wasn't as good at. So getting 31 stolen bases was something that helped me a lot and helped me get a little bit more confident in that area of my, of my skill set. And, you know, I, I didn't hit relative. I hit okay – but with the Royals, there wasn't tons of exceptional uh, position players when I was in the minor league system, and I'm not saying there wasn't. There was some, but we were definitely known for our pitching, because in the minor leagues I I played with Mike Jones, and I played with Tony Ferrer, and I played with David Cohn, and I played with Brett Saberhagen, and with Danny Jackson, and with Gubaza, and there was just so many guys that I'm even leaving out that were just exceptional pitchers. So we were usually known more in the minor league system as a pitching-rich group as opposed to a position uh, player-rich pool. So when I had a reasonable year, I would usually get to go to the next step the next year where there was guys from other organizations that would have these hit 300 and hit 25 home runs and hit 100 RBIs, and they'd have to go back to the same place if i hit 268 and hit five home runs and stole 31 bases i could go to the next level right <laughs> and so again going back to the royals being so into their own farm system that was a really good thing for me personally so that helped a lot just i always had coaches who had faith in me which i'm very grateful for
1: well, 1984, I'm willing to bet you remember a, a certain day. It was June 23rd of 84. You were playing with the Memphis Chicks. You hit two grand slams in the first game of a seven-inning doubleheader at Jacksonville. Then in the second game, you hit a three-run homer, so you had 11 RBIs in the two games. I'm assuming you probably remember that day pretty well?
0: Yeah, the weird thing was that I played in Memphis with our home park, and which was the easiest field in the league to hit a home run. I hit zero in Memphis for the year. <laughs> I go to Jacksonville, which was the hardest place to hit a home run, and I hit three in one day. So I hit 75% of my home runs that year and 20% of my RBIs in one day. <laughs> so, yes, I did call my dad, even though it was a double hitter and it was kind of late, but he said I could wake him up anytime when I had a day like that, so, but I never had to call him after that. So I never had another <laughs> day like that.
1: <laughs> That's great. Well, in 85, you spent the whole year at Omaha. You played primarily in right field. You had two home runs that year, but both were uh, game winners and occurred in the final at bat of road games. So do you remember those home runs at all in 85?
0: <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> yeah, how, about that? how about
1: that for digging through the media guides right I, there? I
0: tell you, I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, so, who who are they against? And maybe it'll. I don't know. I'll have to go back. I don't know if it okay. said that. I no, just... that's fine. Yeah. So, yeah, I didn't have a great year, but I did show that I wasn't overwhelmed. And then after that year, I actually got put on the 40 men roster for the first time. So then I was able to go to my first major league spring training in 1986.
1: Yeah. Well, how'd you like playing at uh, good old Rest in Peace Rosenblatt Stadium? I grew up going to games there,
0: so I love that old park. No, I loved. Uh, Johnny Rosenblatt Stadium. And I always thought that would have been a perfect stadium for them to do the comparison of wood bats and aluminum bats because it was a hard place to hit home runs. And then we would go on our 17 day road trip when the College World Series and we'd watch ESPN and those guys are making it look like a bandbox. <laughs> and I'm like, going, what is the problem here? And then they made it so there was so many cuz I came back in 1993 to to Rosenblatt and they'd made the bleachers so much higher to make it a real stadium and then it was it was a bandbox then I mean it just made the ball fly a whole lot more so I loved playing at uh Rosenblatt and I also loved Omaha itself because it's you know when you think back and I'm not saying this for for your uh good here i just when i look back at the places that we actually lived omaha would be in the top five of the places that we played and if we would have we could have settled down in omaha is what i'm trying to say
1: huh that's cool so 1986 you began there again but then you got called up to kc and made your big league debut on july 7th of 86 but before we talk about that what do you remember about the moment you got told you were being called up is there kind of a cool story or where were you at and all that good stuff
0: In Iowa, playing the Iowa hated Iowa Cubs, right? And we were in the locker room, and the coach came. Wanted the manager wanted to bring me into the office, and so it was John Bowles, and he told me the situation, and he said that I was going to get called up the next day, and I, I still believe I played that day which is not normal. No, not at all. (laughs) Because they don't want you to get hurt. And, but I could be wrong on that, but I believe I still played that day. And the reason that he told me a day early, so he actually told me on the 6th, was, and that was my mother's birthday. And the reason that he called me in to tell me is, I was married, and my wife was actually on this road trip, and, we had one child at that time so he kind of figured i needed a little bit warning to to get things a little bit more prepared so i was very grateful that he thought ahead in that area but yeah it was a it was a surreal moment because you're hoping you're wanting that time to come but you still don't know you know you're one and i never played with the thought that i was going to get injured i would run into walls and i I just thought that when you played, trying not to get hurt was the time that people used to get hurt. That's why I always tell parents, because I deal with people with other sports also, as far as their are baseball players who work with me, but they also play football, or the parent might want them to play football, and I always say, football is the one sport that you shouldn't talk anyone into playing, because if they're not really wanting to do it, it's a sport that they can get hurt in, because it's a sport that you have to be willing to go out there and be the aggressor so to say because if you're the one trying not to get hurt you get hurt yeah so i never played with this cautiousness that i was scared of getting hurt because i just i knew it was in god's hands and i was just gonna do my best and whatever happened happened
1: so fact or fiction that kingery was misspelled on the back of your jersey in your first game with the royals
0: uh fact and fiction it was (laughs) fact when i got there that was spelled wrong it R-E-Y instead of E-R-Y. <laughs> went out, by the time I get back from practice, it was felt right. So then I knew I was in the big leagues when they were able to switch it that fast. <laughs> yeah, right. Well,
1: your major league debut was against Mike Boddicker, who'd play for the Royals later, obviously, but you went two for four against the Orioles. So that day, was your entire family able to make it to Casey, and I'm assuming a pretty special day?
0: Not everybody, but many of the family members were able to make it, and just going there, my wife and I driving from Omaha to Kansas City trying to think through it I knew Mike Boddicker was pitching so I go I'll probably get a chance to play because at that time they weren't letting me hit a lot off of oh well, I shouldn't say that uh, I knew that they wouldn't platoon me because there was a righty pitching and I'm a left-handed hitter so I kind of figured I might play I get to the park get in the elevator the first person I see is Eddie Murray <laughs> and he goes first day huh And I go, yes, sir. And so that was kind of a surreal moment. I had played with his brother, Rich, in 1985 in Omaha. And so Eddie Murray was very pleasant with me, very, very professional. So that was a cool moment. I get into the locker room and talk to some of the guys that I know. Jamie Cork was the guy who helped me the most, and Jamie had been in Omaha with me a little bit. And Jamie just went out of his way to make me feel comfortable. So I don't know how things work. There was no lineup up, and I didn't know what was happening. And I go, am I supposed to go talk to the manager? And they go, he'll come and get you when he wants you. So I'm just sitting, going through my stuff, and all of a sudden Dick Hauser comes and gets me, or he didn't come and get me. The messenger said the manager wants to see ya. And he brings me in there and he goes, congratulations, George is hurt, I don't have anyone else who can hit third, so you're hitting third tonight. (laughs) I go, okay. (laughs) And so the first at-bat was I popped up to Cal Ripken at shortstop, but I was just thankful I made contact. I got the jitters out of me. (laughs) Next at-bat, I hit a looping liner in between Ripken and and Freddie Lynn in center field and got my first base hit. The next ball I hit in between short and third. Ripken fielded it, it was backhand through it. I was quite fast, so I was able to beat it out. I don't remember the third at-bat, but it was, I should say, I don't remember the fourth at-bat, but that was a tremendously exciting time. It It was fun. I was actually more nervous from a defensive standpoint than I was from an offensive standpoint. Really? Because often I'm like going, who doesn't strike out, whatever. But you didn't want to clank a ball in the outfield. And so... I was a little bit more nervous playing the outfield. But after I got done with my first game, it really helped me to settle down. It was obviously nice to get a hit the first game too and actually to get two of them. And then the next game I didn't start because they pitched a lefty, and so we're losing by one run, and it's the ninth inning. And Don Ossie, who's leading the American League and says at the time, comes in, and they call me to pinch hit to be the leadoff hitter. And so I got the tape here at home, and the guys on the team said, he's not going to throw you a knuckleball. So in other words, the guy throws really hard, be ready for it. So I'm walking new after I leave the on-deck circle. I'm just staring at the third-base coach going, does he want me to take? Does he want me to take? And I'm hoping he doesn't want me to take, and he doesn't give me the take sign. First pitch, I hit a triple into the right center field (laughs) gap, and it we ended up uh, scoring they had a 9 game losing streak when I got called up and then we lost the first 2 games and then we started doing better and so we ended up losing that game in extra innings and I had a 9 game hitting streak the yeah. first 9 games and which the rookie record at that time for his first time ever being called up was an 11 game streak but the worst thing happened in game number 9 I hit my first home run Trump. and then I went the next 28 at-bats, thinking I was a home-run hitter and swinging at goofy pitches, and so I went 0 for my next 28 after a nine-game hitting streak, so it was, my rookie season was very up and down. I would have been probably quite exasperating to the Kansas City fans who are listening to this, (laughs) because I was either on fire or I was brutal, and but that is not untypical for a rookie, but I was very very inconsistent.
1: Yeah, well, you also had a four for five day at Boston with a triple and you had five triples for that season. And So, one thing I wanted to ask you about was Dick Hauser. How tough was it seeing him you know, walk away halfway through that year?
0: You know, I didn't get to know him as well, obviously, because it was only about a week or so after I got called up that he got diagnosed. And so, it was very traumatic on the team. It was, I, being a little wet behind the ears, I, I didn't even know how to react. And I didn't know him as well, but it was, it was very difficult. But Mike Ferraro came in and being the interim manager and did a wonderful job. And I'm very thankful. Mike came up to me and he said, have you ever played center field? And I said, well, a little bit. He said, I think you should start taking some balls out in center field, because he said there's a lot of players that don't want the responsibility of center field, and they rather play in the corners. So I took his advice, and in September, Bo got called up, and that's when Mike Ferraro talked to me about that. And so Willie Wilson is obviously center fielder, so I wasn't going to replace him, but I I played some out in center, and it really did help me in the length of my career. There was a couple times that I took advice of people that lengthened my career by, I would say, three or four years. And One was the ability to be able to play play center field, because offensively I was not a right fielder, so any team that I was on, if it was a power-hitting team... That would have been the best scenario because then they wouldn't have looked at right field and go, why do we have a right fielder who can't hit for power? And but when I was on a team that didn't have power, the first place that they would look would be right field. And you know I would hit about five or six a year if you gave me 600 at bats, maybe a couple more, and it just wasn't my game. I was six foot 185, and it just wasn't my my thing, I was more of a defense and a speed guy, and but so it really helped me because offensively I would have been a little bit more center fielder-ish than I would have been because a right fielder they're looking for someone who's going to hit 25 and have about 80 to 100 RBIs, right. and that just I never did that. Wow. So listening to his advice helped me a lot.
1: You mentioned Bo Jackson. What, what what were your initial thoughts of him? Talk about you know the amazing athlete Bo Jackson was.
0: Even though he took my job, I got along very well with him, and he was very nice to me. I have nothing but good memories of Bo. When I, and I still live out in West Central Minnesota, and I, whenever someone brings up Bo, and it might be me, or it might be someone else, I'll say, I really don't even know how to explain him to someone from west central minnesota because you've never seen anything like it he was six foot two 230 pounds and if he raced the fastest guy who ever lived in your town he'd beat him by almost 10 yards the length of a football field <laughs> and so i said in football if he was in a good mood he would have ran around you if he was in a bad mood he would have ran over you but either way he was going to score and that's just the way it was yeah so it's really difficult for me to even explain him, and there was times that I just looked at him in awe, again, even though he was taking my job, and I I'd never seen anything like it. He was so God-gifted, and he was so fast, and he was so powerful, you know, his instincts were more football-related than baseball-related, but boy, was he skilled. <clears throat> Never seen anything like it. I remember, I remember the first day he got there vividly because the my fans were the general admission people <laughs> out right past the right field fans. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And Santa Claus was always one of the first yeah. guys. I don't know if you remember Santa yeah. Claus. Yeah. And uh, that part of the stadium filled up exceptionally fast his first day. So I the veteran, even though I'd only been here for two months, I take infield first, so they hit me the ball. I do my steps perfect. I throw a one-hop, perfect throw to the third baseman. Exactly what I'm supposed to do. And Boso's the next one, and he made me look like I absolutely had nothing in my arm. <laughs> and i like, what, what is this? I got a really good arm, and he made me look like I had nothing. <laughs> and so it was it was interesting. I remember that day vividly.
1: <laughs> wow. Well, so following that season, uh, I'm sure you were pretty much on cloud nine, you know, excited and looking forward to 87. But as fate would have it, the Royals traded you uh, with Scott Bankhead and Steve Shields to the Mariners for Lucan and Tartable. So where were you at when you found that out? And what were your initial emotions about that?
0: Well, Greg Pryor, uh, longtime Royal, and I used to work out together during that off season. And my name kept on being mentioned in this trade of the Mariners. And every day that the new rumor came out, the one consistent thing from a Royal standpoint was Mike Kingery. And it was Mike Kingery and Mark Gubazov for Tartable, then it was Mike Kingery and Scott Bankhead for Tartable and whatever, but it was always Mike Kingery and Tartable because Dick, how was it, Dick Balderson was now the, the general manager in Seattle, who had been my farm director for years with the Royals. And if he was gonna get rid of Tartable, he wanted me to replace him out in right field. And so Greg Pryor, he was like, you know, don't think too much about it because this stuff gets re- written about a lot of times before it ever happens. And then, so what we were doing is we, we're just getting ready to have our second child, and so we were gonna to have to move to a new apartment. So we were gonna rent a storage shed. We were gonna go home to Minnesota for about a month, spend the holidays, the Christmas time uh, in Minnesota, and then we were gonna come back to Kansas City on the way to spring training, get a new apartment, and go to spring training, and then hopefully plan on making the team, la di da da So I was getting ready, I came back for my last load to bring to the storage shed, and my wife goes, uh, John Sherholtz just called. (laughs) And I don't know what people know about general managers talking to players, but general managers rarely call a player. And so I knew I had been traded. And I called him up, he just said, I wanted you to get this before you heard it on the radio or TV, but we traded you to Seattle. For Danny Tartable. So at first it was a little bit of a shock because I was going to die bleeding royal blue. I was going to live in Kansas City for the rest of my life and la-di-da-di-da-di. And all of a sudden I get traded the very three months after I get called to the major leagues. After I had a time to think back through it, again, I was okay with it because I went, you know what? The Mariners actually want me. They traded for me. right. And so once I had a time to step away from it a little bit, I was okay with it, even though I was going to miss all my friends with the Royals and, and all of the leadership we had with the Royals. And But I went over to Seattle, so I went from one of the best teams in baseball to one of the worst teams in baseball. But the team was just filled with young talent. And if they would have kept that team together for another two years, it would have been one of the best teams in baseball. Yeah. Because... Our pitching staff would have been Mark Langston, Mike Moore, Mike Morgan, Billy Swift, and whoever the fifth guy would have been, which there was a number of guys to do that. It would have Elvin Davis and Harold Reynolds and Ken Griffey Jr. and Jay Buhner, uh, just it would have been a Edgar Martinez. Edgar couldn't even play on the team at first because <laughs> Jim Presley was there, and it took a while for Edgar to actually get in there, but once he got in there, he was a beast. And so it was just filled with really, really good players.
1: Yeah, so there were some great names there. Buhner came later and the big unit and all those guys. Well, so, 88-89, you were with the Mariners, and I don't even know if you know this. You probably know this, but... Uh, Ryan LeFever, Jim LaFever's son, is actually the TV and radio guy for the Royals and has been here since, I think, 99. So how do you like Jim, and do you have any memories of Ryan? I'm doubting it, but maybe?
0: I didn't have memories from Ryan from that time frame, but I have met and talked with Ryan more than once since I was out of baseball. Oh, okay. And so I do know Ryan. Everything I hear about Ryan is positive. And so, playing for his dad, uh, the the main manager that I played for with Seattle was actually Dick Williams. And so, I was with Dick Williams for about a year and a half, and then Jim Schneider took his place. And then Jim Lafever came in in 1989, and there was this guy, I don't know if you've ever heard of, Ken Griffey Jr., who came in also. <laughs> And Ken Griffey Jr. was a tad bit better than Mike Kingery. <laughs> and so in 1989, I don't even believe that they wanted Griffey to make the team out of spring training. I believe they wanted him to get 10 at-bats and then send them down to the minor leagues. because, <clears throat> Excuse me, because he's like 19 years old. And they couldn't take him out. And here I am again watching someone take my spot, but if I would have been in charge of the decisions, whether it was Bo or Griffey, I would have chosen Bo or Griffey over myself also because they were better than I was. And so that, I didn't really spend tons of time with Jim LeFever because I got sent down to the minor leagues and spent the majority of 89 actually in Calgary and then got called up when Griffey, flipped in the shower and broke his finger, and I was up for that, and then I got called up in September, then that spring training in 1990, I actually was asked to go down to the minor leagues again, but I had the chance to say no, because of my options, etc., and I really prayed about it, and I talked to several of my teammates, who I valued their opinion, and talked to family members, and talked to my pastor back home, and everyone, they were offering me $100,000 to play in AAA. And to put that into perspective for your listeners, the first six years that I played professional baseball, I made less than 30000 if you combined all of the six years together. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And all of a sudden, they offered me $100,000 for one year to play in the minor leagues. And that was just unheard of, but I said no. And I just really felt in my heart that I needed to say no, and I went home, you know, saying no at the end of spring training is, in earthly uh, wisdom, really stupid, because everybody's getting rid of players from their team, they're not really looking to add to their team, so I go home for like a week, and nobody is interested, and I'm like going, oh no, (laughs) and then all of a sudden the San Francisco Giants called and they had room on their minor league team. And for your listeners, the minor leagues was not the deal. I had enough humility to go to the minor leagues. The problem was I didn't want to go in the minor leagues to strictly be an insurance policy because I figured that I was telling myself and the rest of the baseball world that that's all I thought I was was a minor league player if I accepted that $100,000 play in the AAA. And so I go to the minor leagues with the Giants and end up being there for about six weeks. I get called up, I think, like May 28th or something like that of 1990. And I end up leading the National League in non-starting appearances. Huh. So I played in all but 11 games in 1990 after I got called up, and I wasn't a starter. So I went in to pinch run, I went in to play defense, I went in to pinch hit. I knew when I was going in the game before Roger Craig, my manager, knew when I was going in the game, because I just started thinking like Roger Craig, and I knew exactly when I was going to go in, almost 100% of the time, because I just was very perceptive in that, and i knew how he was thinking so i would know what to do to get ready and i ended up hitting 295 that year and ended up being a really good addition to the giants so again that was a turning point in our career
1: wow you've, you've had so many temps with faith then about almost quitting and not turning taking that it's just an amazing story so then in 1992, you signed with Oakland after a couple years with the Giants, and you were between Triple A Tacoma and Oakland. How about your times on the on the other side of the bay? How'd you like that year?
0: It was probably my weirdest little part of my career was the time with the A's. It was the best team I ever played with, and but I was only there for about three weeks. I made the team out of spring training barely, even though they only had three outfielders without me, and it was just a It was just an interesting interesting time in my life because there was just this ambiguity. And uh, Roger Craig, at the the last three days of the season, uh, I should say of spring training, they do the Bay Bridge Series between Oakland and San Francisco. So I go to the Bay Bridge Series, and Roger Craig comes up to me the last day, and he said, are you on this team or what? I said, I don't know, they haven't told me. And he goes, <clears throat> so he just wished me the best. And Tony La Russa came up to me and he said, I just want you to know you're on the team, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> and I go, OK. So I got my wife there, and we got three children. And so I called her over, and I just said, we're on the team, but we're not supposed to tell anybody. And so then after the game, he came up and told me, and then they made the official moves and all that type of stuff. And so <clears throat> I was just there to be there until Dave Henderson got back. And then once Dave Henderson got back, I was – and I played with Willie Wilson again in Oakland there. Yeah. And uh, so he was a center fielder, and I was the backup. And then Dave Henderson came, and then Willie became the backup, and I got sent down and ended up doing really well in Triple A, But they – weren't tremendously interested in me and so then that year was I won't say a disappointment because I learned I played with Bob Boone and uh, actually Herc Robinson and Bob Hagman called me up when the Royals were thinking about hiring Bob Boone as a manager and
1: So 1993, then you signed where where it all started again with uh, Kansas City. Now, that team was loaded. 37 of the 42 uh, players on that Omaha team uh, appeared in a game in the major leagues during their career at some point, 37 to 42. So that 1993 season, first of all, what made you choose Kansas City again, and what do you remember about that year in Omaha?
0: Well, the writing was starting to get written on the wall. That All of a sudden, I'm 32 years old, and I... Actually, I might have been 33 during the season, and 33, 33, whatever. And I just went, you know what, if I'm going to have to play AAA, then let's play at the closest place to home. So then when we would go on a two-week road trip, my wife could just come home. It was only a five-and-a-half, six-hour drive for Chris she could come home and stay at home and be with her mother and, and get the kids back in our home and so I mostly made that decision based on what was best for my family and I ended up having an okay offensive year there. I hit more home runs than I usually did and really enjoyed, I think Bob Hamlin I think he called me grandpa <laughs> And but it was in a in a good way, and uh, Dan Rohrmeier, I kind of took him under my under my wing because he was already penciled in as a designated hitter, but him and I played long toss daily, and his arm strength improved. I, I won't say I was an outfield coach for the team, but I did do a lot of outfield type stuff. Uh, Kevin Kowalski was obviously really good. Uh, Defensive center fielder and so I never played center field I mostly played left field that year and uh, played some right field also and had one of the teammates come up to me at the end of the year and he just said I just want you to know you're the best outfield I've ever seen in my life and so I worked really hard on my defense and tried to keep a good attitude at the end of the year uh... Uh, Cox called me and my manager into the uh, lock into the office and he just said "This is, I just want you to know and Bob Boone did the same thing the year before He said, both of them said I just want you to know I believe you can still play in the big leagues and uh, Cox said as far as I'm concerned you can go and try out go to any big league spring training you can find out and if you can't find a job there's a place waiting for you here and so I was very grateful for his belief in me, and also him wanting me on his team, And but again, thinking more about myself than about himself, and so went to spring training with the Colorado Rockies, I am the second oldest guy on the team, I, they give me number 52 for my jersey, I'm like, oh, I am not an offensive guard. i got like four <laughs> years in the major leagues and I get number 52. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So I end up hitting about 180 in spring training. and But Don Baylor, probably the, definitely one of the major league managers I respected the most, came up to me and he kept on trying to encourage me. And one day... Going back to advice I received from other people, I got out my first baseman mitt. I am not a first baseman. I did not want to play first base. Who wants to be playing first base when Barry Bonds is hitting? Right. I would, I'd much rather be 300 feet away than 110 feet away. <laughs> and so, but Elvin Davis, my very wise Christian brother from the Seattle Mariners, came up to me. He said, Mike, get yourself a first baseman's mitt. And I go, why? He said, it will lengthen your career. So I get out my first baseman's mitt. I start having a coach hit me some ground balls. Within five minutes, and if you've ever seen a major league spring training, you got more than one field. you got all these things happening in all these different fields. And <clears throat> within five minutes, Don Baylor is on my field, behind the screen at first base, saying, you ever played here in the major leagues? And I said, yes, I've been here about maybe f- parts of 15 games. He said, I want you to get with Gene Glenn, who was the guy who did all the bunt signs. I wanted to get with him and talk about the bunt signs. And I probably played as much first base the rest of spring training than I did out in the outfield. Huh. And they did not want me to be the first baseman because we had one of the three best first basemen in baseball was Andres Galarraga. But they wanted to know that if something happened to the big cat – I could go in there and play first base if need be and I ended up making their team and I just sat back again from a spiritual standpoint and I went, you know what, I know I worked really hard, I tried to keep a good attitude but besides that I did nothing to warrant me being on this team. I am the second oldest guy on this team, I have been in the minor leagues predominantly the last two years I hit about 190 in spring training and I make the team (laughs) and I'm like going for Minnesota people who I'm usually speaking to Carl Polad was the owner for years and now his sons are the owners Mm -hmm. and I'm like going if Carl Polad is my father. I do not make the team, (laughs) but I I serve a God who's more powerful than Carl Polad, and my God wanted me on the team. So I'm on the team, and it was the most relaxed I've ever been in a season because I realized how much I didn't deserve it. And I went out there and didn't get to play tons at the beginning because we had Dante Bichette in right. We had Ellis Burks, who was named the National League Player of the Month in center field. And we had a guy uh, so good in left field, they named a hotel chain after him. We had Howard Johnson in <laughs> left field. And so there just really wasn't a place for me. And But they wanted me the year before. The off, outfield had a tough time catching the ball, and they wanted someone who could catch the ball, so I'd go in for – for defensive purposes or to pinch hit whatever then ellis got hurt he was supposed to be out for three to six weeks and he was out for over a year and i ended up being the everyday center fielder i started out hitting well the person i don baylor came up to me and he said i just want you to know you're going to be my center fielder against all the right-handed pitchers i did well the person who was hitting off the lefties did not do well I end up getting my first start off of a lefty in about eight years off of Jeff Fasero when we were playing in Montreal. Yeah. And that was just, I mean, he was one of the five best lefties in baseball at mm-hmm. the time. And But it was just uh, a really, stou- it just really filled me with confidence. Uh, I don't know that I got a hit. I think I got the only RBI. I think we lost like 3-1 to or something. I can't remember. But then I started playing every single day against everybody. I ended up hitting 349, which was third in the National League of hitting when the strike happened. And I made every play out in the outfield. I came kind of became a folk hero in center field. Because usually when you're in the outfield, you get to be with the fans who couldn't get into the game a little cheaper. Mm-hmm. So they had a place in Colorado called The Rock Pile, and it was $1 tickets. In the Rock Pile. So the Rock Pile were my fans. So they would be the people who would get there because it was first come, first serve. And when I was in Colorado the first year, we averaged 59,000 people a game.
1: Oh, my gosh. Oh yeah, that's before, We had 10 too.
0: games where we had 70,000-plus <laughs> people. We had a Tuesday game against the Chicago Cubs. And we had over seventy
1: thousand people. Good grief. Well, you hit three forty nine that year, like you said, four hundred two on base, nine thirty three OPS, and then you and uh, Roberto Mejia hit the first ever back to back home runs at Coors Field as well. But so, how, how frustrating was that strike when it happened? I mean, I was obviously for you, you know, personally, you know, immensely, right?
0: I, I think the frustrating thing for me is the fact that. You got this billion-dollar industry, and you can't have enough good faith on either side to get together and just try to get along with each other. And I, I would probably say some things. In fact, I probably will right now. That would get me in trouble with the union. But I'm very grateful that the union actually gave in a little bit in the last last couple negotiations with a little revenue sharing, and also with the drug testing. And it's not good in an industry when one team beats the other team every single time they have negotiations. And the players beat the owners for 25 years. And that's just not good for the health of the game when one side wins all the time. And so, to be honest with you, we didn't even vote on it as individuals. It was just the union reps who voted on whether we'd go on strike or not. So I never even had a chance to vote on it. And which, that's a whole other story for a whole other day. But I, you know, for me personally, it wasn't good. But that being secondary, it just wasn't good for baseball. And it didn't help anything. Uh, nothing was resolved in it. All it did was put another black eye on this very wonderful game. And so I am glad that these last 10 years or whatever that both sides have gotten along with each other better, and I just think it's really good for the health. The future of the game is when both sides are feeling, you know, when you have a happy marriage, it's not just good for the husband or not just good for the wife. It's good for both of them, and when you have a happy marriage where it's good for the owners and for the players and, most importantly, and for the fans, that's when everything is firing on all cylinders, in my opinion. So, yes, it was, it was hard for me personally, but that being said, I didn't think about it that much from an individual standpoint. I thought of it as I remember mostly we played the Braves, and the game got over. We were in Colorado, and I remember getting booed on the way out. Hmm. And that was one of the hardest things ever that I had to go through as a player was just everybody booing in the stands and to be honest with you they had every right to do so
1: yeah well 95 you came back and you got a chance to taste the playoffs with the Rockies which had to be special you guys lost to Atlanta unfortunately but how cool was it making a postseason during your career
0: it was exciting I personally didn't do as well in 95 as I did in 94 and this was the first year in Coors Field was 95 so the other was at mile high and we averaged 59,000 people a game, then we moved into a stadium that only fit 50,000. And so tickets were quite premium for many, many, many years there. And Ellis Burks came back uh, probably about two-thirds of the way, maybe through the season, and Don Baylor still kept me out in center field most of the time, even over Ellis, and Ellis was getting paid way more than me. And so it was an exciting time. We just ended up squeaking in uh, by the hair of our chinny-chin-chin. Chin. We had to score. In fact, if I look right here in my office, I can tell you right here, at the end of the top of the third in the last game of the season, Houston won. And so we had to win to get in to be the first National League wild card ever. If we lost, we had to fly right after the game to Houston to play a one-game uh, playoff. And at the end of the top of the third, we were losing 8-2. Oh,
1: my gosh.
0: And then we scored four runs here in the fourth inning, so I made it 8-6. to six. And then we scored uh, four runs, made it uh, four runs in the bottom of the fifth, so then we were up ten to eight and then uh, we ended up winning ten to nine. Man. So it was cool. We walked around the stadium, the place was on its feet for thirty minutes anyway. And it was it was quite it was quite the experience. It was the first time these fans had been to the playoffs. It was the first time for me personally. And you did bring up the fact that we had to play the Braves and that was the only year they won the World Series. And, But we, by far, if you go back and look into that playoff, we were by far their biggest challenge. And we shoulda, coulda, woulda won the first two games in uh, Colorado against Smoltz, I should say against Maddox and Glavin, but we lost them both at the very end of the game, and then... The, uh, we fly to Atlanta to face Smoltz, and you know better than I that Smoltz was a better postseason pitcher than either Maddox or Glavin. Oh, yeah. And we beat Smoltz, but then we got hammered the next game against Maddox. And so I did not play the first two games in Colorado, but I played the first two games, I should say the last two games in Atlanta, I got to pinch hit off of Mark Wohlers in the ninth inning. We're losing by one run. I came up, I don't know, I think there might have been one out when I came up. I got a base hit. And to make a long story short, I ended up being at third base with one out and Andres Galarraga up to hit. And I'm like going, you know what? We got a chance here. And, but. We had made a change in about the maybe seventh inning where we pinch ran for Vinny Castilla. And so when I came in to hit, I was the last position player used. There was no other people that were available to play anymore. Uh And right after Galarraga, because of in the National League doing double switches, right after Galarraga was Vinny Castillo's spot.
1: So they walked him.
0: And no, they because we had bases loaded. So that oh, the bases were
1: loaded. I got gotcha. you.
0: And uh, so Gene Glenn, the third base coach, goes, Mike, look who's on deck. And we were having to pinch hit for the pitcher with a pitcher. <laughs> and so he goes, Mike, it does not have to be a very – far fly ball for you to try to score. And so Galarag ended up striking out, and then Lance Painter came up, and he ended up striking out. Yeah. So we lost with the tying run at third and the winning run at second, and that was the second game of the playoff. Uh. And then we went to uh, Atlanta, and I knew it was the playoffs when EY, Eric Young, got on base first. So I was the second hitter in the lineup. And they give me the bunt sign in the first inning. (laughs) And I'm like going, boy, this must be important if they have me bunting in the first inning. And so I bunted the ball. And I was trying to avoid Smoltz. And he tried to tag me instead of throwing it to first. So I slid to try to avoid him. He tripped over me. And EY made it all the way to third. So it worked out perfect.
1: Yeah, talk about a sacrifice, right? A
0: sacrifice. Yeah, I got <laughs> I got them two two bases. And so EY we ended up winning that game and then uh, Brett Saberhagen pitched game 4 and both Brett Saberhagen and Billy Swift were scheduled to have shoulder surgery after the season was over and for Billy Swift needing soldier, shoulder surgery was not as detrimental to him as it was to Saberhagen because Billy Swift being more of a sinker ball pitcher, sometimes the faster those guys throw, the more of their ball flattens out. So he wasn't able to throw very hard, but his ball was moving like crazy because he just didn't have the normal velocity that he had. And, but with Saberhagen being a power pitcher, it took a little bit off of his fastball. And so we, we lost game number four, but just the experience was awesome. And, you know, it was way more nerve-wracking than normal. But once you got out there, to be honest with you, it was way more nerve-wracking sitting on the bench the first two games than playing games three and four. Yeah.
1: I guess I can see I Man, I hope we get to experience that in Kansas City. It's been since I'm 33, so I was four the last time we were there. So I'm hoping to finally see my first playoffs for the Royals. But so you and the Rockies at the end of 95 – Decided to part ways then, and you signed with Pittsburgh, finished your big league career there in 96. Any nice memories with Pittsburgh?
0: Well, Pittsburgh, it was different. And, you know, parting ways, what had happened was they decided not to offer me a contract. So, again, God's way of protecting me personally was a lot of times when someone goes as a free agent, then they return to the place where they used to play, they get booed. And so I go to Pittsburgh, I'm supposed to be their starting center fielder, and I end up doing horrible the first two months, and I end up getting sat on the bench the day that Pedro Martinez was pitching against our team. (laughs) And so Jermaine Allensworth comes to take my place, and I had a chance to sit back and evaluate going, okay, why did they have to call someone up to take my place? Well, I wasn't. Hitting very well, and for the first time in my major league career, I wasn't playing defense like normal. I wasn't getting as good of jumps, whatever, whatever. And so, Jermaine goes up there and strikes out his first at bat. Jermaine goes up there and strikes out his second at bat. And it's one to nothing. It's the sixth inning. Base is loaded off of Pedro. Jermaine comes up for his third at bat. And in a move that I actually would have disagreed with because what were they expecting this rookie to do against Pedro Martinez? Right. And, but they pinched hit me for him in the sixth inning bases loaded one out. And as I tell people when I go out and talk, especially younger people, is a lot of times when things go bad, we tend to pout, feel sorry for ourselves, blame other people for our results. And I went, you know, why am I... On the bench, and I looked inwardly, and the reason that I was not on the bench again was because I wasn't hitting well and I wasn't playing as good defense. So I'm going to come early, I'm going to hit more, I'm going to take more fly balls, etc., etc. So I go through that day actually with a good attitude, even though I just got benched for the first time uh, for that first the first day that I was getting benched. So I was able to come up and hit off of Pedro with a clear slate because I wasn't mad at Jim uh, with uh, Jim Leland. I wasn't blaming anybody else. And I go up there, and for some reason, Pedro was never able to throw his off-speed stuff to me for a strike. So he threw me a first-pitch changeup for a ball, and then the next ball I hit out for a grand slam. And I, it was just so... Cool to be able to go through I wouldn't say it was cool when I was going through it but now when I'm older and wiser it's a story that I can tell with other young people because things don't always go the way you want them to go and how you react to those things is very important and obviously I would think that you need to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ to help you through those things but that isn't why you have a relationship it's just one of the fringe benefits that I know God and, and he's able to Helped me to be able to react or act in certain ways that I wouldn't be able to do it on my own. So that was probably the coolest memory that I have from the Pirates. Our team didn't do as well. They actually thought that the Pirates would be reasonable that year and then they started really doing a lot of trades at the end of that year and during where they actually traded J. Bell and Jeff King to Kansas City. Mm -hmm. And I made it all winter. I made it through all of those trades and all of those moves. And then the Pirates signed, uh, I think it was Pat Mears as shortstop from the Twins to oh, take yeah. J. Bell's place. And so then they, I got a uh, letter in the mail on Christmas Eve saying that I had been released. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And so I made it through all of those uh all of those moves until that last move. And I was, so we prayed a lot and asked God what he would want us to do. And I was going to be 36 years old. I was, it was kind of funny because someone you know well now, Mike Swanson, the Swanny, vice yeah. president of media, he was my media guy when I was with the Rockies. And he used to like to tease me for some reason. So it was a very good-natured teasing. In fact, I've talked with Swanee several times since I've no longer been playing baseball. And so every day for your listeners, the Royals, when they're playing the Red Sox tonight, the Royals will send over a 15 or whatever page, at least that's how they did it in the Ice Age when I played, (laughs) a little thing just kind of out of respect telling you how everybody on the Royals is doing a little paragraph about everybody, and the Red Sox do the same thing. So then the the uh, relation, the media relation, people aren't having to dig up every single team individually. So it's just kind of a respect thing to do for each other. So every time, so in 1990, 91, I didn't hit a home run when I was with the Giants. I was used mostly as a, a backup type guy. 90 and 93. I'm almost in the minor leagues the whole time. So 94, I get called up, and Swanee starts writing in the paragraph how long it had been since I'd hit a home run. <laughs> so people, the media, the announcers, because I got tapes at home here of my at-bats, and, and you'll listen to them, and they're sitting there going, this guy hasn't hit a home run since 1989, saying <laughs> all this stuff. It's been all these, and it's making it sound like I got 2000 at bats without a home run, <laughs> and I had about 250 maybe. And anyway, so I finally hit a home run in Montreal, and I go, Good, now Swanee's not going to say it. So the next day I come back, and Swanee has written in there that it had been so long since I'd hit one outdoors. <laughs> so then, two days, whatever, we went from Montreal to New York play the Mets and right away I hit a home run in New York so I go finally and then the next day I come back and it said it has been so long since I'd hit one west of the Mississippi (laughs) so then we I hit one in San Diego then he gave up and so it was kind of funny but so Swanee uh, and I have had a a good little teasing relationship there but I uh, come back to So I don't do very well in Pittsburgh for that first little bit. So we come to uh, Colorado to play the Rockies, my former team, and I'm not doing well. I think the 50,000 people who are there know I'm not doing well. God obviously knows I'm not doing well. So I needed a little pick-me-up. So I already told you that a lot of times when you leave to go to what a player might think is greener pastures, you get booed when you come back, and I was in Minnesota when Chuck Knobloch came back when he was with the Yankees, and they actually had a delay in the game because the left field bleachers started throwing stuff at (laughs) Knobloch, and got to the point where they had to announce it over over the intercom, and Tom Kelly walked out to stand with Chuck Knobloch and his former manager. So anyway... Sometimes they don't treat you well when you're that free agent. And I come up, and before my name is announced, 50,000 people are on their feet giving me a standing ovation for from the opposing fans. Huh. And I go up their first pitch, and I get a base hit. And I get to first base, and Andres Galarraga goes, "You King, you a professional hitter. I get to second base, and Eric Young says, good job, King. I get to... Sh- shortstop and Walt Weiss came up and just said Mike I just want you to know I was more happy when you got your hit than when I got my hit earlier in the game I get to third base and Vinny the outfield is screaming at me in a positive way and so it was just something that I really needed to pick me up and it was nice to know that you know when you're struggling sometimes you start feeling sorry for yourself and feeling alone and like you're the only person out there and so it was it was something that i needed at the time so that would probably be my two biggest memories with the the pirates are the pedro martinez home run and then just going back to colorado for the first time
1: so did you was it a pretty clear decision to hang it up then going into 1997 when was that decision made and how tough or easy was that choice
0: well again we prayed and i had to go through about two weeks of waivers and the reason was is because it was during Christmas and New Year's, so it had to be during actual business days and all this type of stuff. And so it took about two weeks to go through, and I had to go through a separate, second set of waivers because I had an existing contract. So if someone picked me up, they were going to have to accept the contract that I had signed with the Pirates. I had signed 16 one-year contracts. I finally signed a two-year contract, and then I get fired after the first year of the contract. And so... We just prayed and said, God, if someone wants us to play, they will pick us up on waivers. And nobody did, so we stopped playing then. Okay, that makes sense. And I was, was it hard? Yeah. Was it hard? No. I mean, Derek Jeter, you're hearing much about him, and there's certain things that obviously he's going to miss. There's other things that he won't miss, and that's the same in every occupation.
1: Yeah. Do you have all those sixteen contracts, by the way? Like the one, do you actually keep copies of them?
0: Uh, I bet you we probably do have them. My wife <laughs> is, is very good at keeping track of that. That's great. Now, I don't know if we have the first two because I weren't wasn't married for the first two.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> 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 the responsibility hadn't joined you yet. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: So when you look back then, what are you most proud of of your baseball career?
0: I'm most proud that I I really feel like. I did my best. I'm a coach now, and we have a game tomorrow morning, and I'll just tell the kids. In fact, we'll be down – my teams will be down in Kansas City playing on, oh, October – let me see – October 18th and 19th, I believe it is. And I'll tell the guys – guys, all I want you to do is give me your best. I don't want you to put any pressure on yourself. I just want you to do is give me your best. If you give me your best and we lose, I'm okay. If you don't give me your best and we win, I'm not okay. Just give me your best. And my big deal is not winning or losing. My big deal is trying to properly influence these kids and also to teach them the wonderful game of baseball and try to teach them how to act proper, how as I say to win with honor and to lose with honor and you know you always look at being a good sport on the loser side most since I've been doing a lot of coaching especially the last three years I see that the lack of sportsmanship is usually on the winning team side and where they're stealing bases when they're winning by 11 runs in the last inning and doing stuff that in professional baseball, there would be a fight over. right? And so I just tell the kids to do my best. And I feel like I did my best. I feel like I left nothing on the table. So when it was time to be done, I didn't have any regrets. I didn't look back going, if only, if only, if only, if only. And that's what I tell my players. Don't get into the if onlys. Do your best and let God take care of the rest and, In 1994, I believe Mike Kingery became the best player that Mike Kingery could be. And that was exceptionally satisfying to me personally. I didn't win the batting title. I tell Minnesota people here, Joe Maurer only hit higher than me one year. (laughs) And he has three batting titles, and I have none. And I say, you know why? And they go, why? I said, because he did not have Tony Gwynn in his league. (laughs)
1: Right.
0: So the year I hit 349, Tony Gwynn hit 394. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't even close. And Jeff Bagel was hitting 366. And so I wasn't going to win if the season kept going. But I just am very happy that I did my best and I was able to survive for 17 years and was able to play with some of the coolest people in this world. And you know, I met very few people in the game of baseball that I did not like. And I learned a lot about how to treat other people. I learned a lot about how to instruct other people. I just learned a lot about life through the game of baseball, and I'm very grateful for that.
1: Well, last three or four questions. Thanks a lot for your, all your time, by the way. Your yep. your your favorite memories as a Royal, your favorite moment as a Royal when you look back?
0: I I would say my first game is the thing that sticks out the most, but when I look at the big picture, George Brett was my favorite superstar. And I don't say that because I'm being interviewed by someone who is from Kansas City. I, he treated me with the utmost respect and when I came back in 1993 I was in Major League Spring Training and him and I were running sprints together and he goes, man you can run. And I go, man you can hit. <laughs> and he goes, only because I've been given more opportunities than you. And I like went, what a humble thing to say for one of the best players in baseball. And I, I, I love George, and I got to see him last year when he was doing the hitting for the Royals when he came to Target Field. And he remembered me, which I was only with him for three months, and he was hurt for a while there. And he remembered me like, I was his best friend, and I just really, I, I appreciated just being part of the Royals. I thought they were a first-class organization.
1: Which teammates uh, were you closest with in KC, and then do you stay in touch with any of your old Royals teammates today?
0: Uh, you know, guys I would keep in contact now would have been more guys that I was in the minor leagues with. Uh, Bob, Bobby Harold, obviously—I should say Bob Harold. That's. But I wasn't thinking Bob Harold at the time. But yes, Bob Harold, and uh, Bob Hagman, and Doug Gilcrease was my roommate in the minor leagues. He's now the chaplain for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Oh, cool. And Mike Miller, who was my roommate in the minor leagues, and he was one of the heir parents to Frank White at second base, and he ended up having some back issues, and so as far as on the major league roster, the people that helped me out the most. I would say Jamie Quirk would have been he drove me to Jamie Quirk got me a shoe contract with Converse. Jamie Quirk got me a bat contract with Louisville Slugger. And Jamie Quirk brought me to the park every single day. All my wife had to do was drive me to Jamie's house. And then Jamie would drive me to the park. So then Chris would have a vehicle she could come to the game later or if i would have had to drive she would either had to come with me to the park and then go back home so jamie was awesome anytime i had a uh anytime i had a question i always went to jamie and in september of 86 the royals we were in third place and the twins were not doing well so my town called the twins to see if the Twins would have a day for an opposing player, myself. So the Twins said, yep, we can have Mike Kingery Day. So we had Mike Kingery Day (laughs) at the Metrodome and George uh, I should say it came to the ballpark and there's 700 people coming from my hometown out of 1,000 and I come to the park and my name is not in the lineup card. This has been prepared for months. Jamie, I go, what's the deal here? I was, I talked with Mike Ferraro. I was going to play even if Frank Biola pitched. And I'm not in the lineup. And Jamie just sits there and he's trying to talk to me and talk to me. Then Mark Ferraro comes up and goes, did someone put the wrong lineup card out? (laughs) (laughs) So they were spoofing me a little bit. And it was fun. My high school baseball coach throughout the first pitch. The men's chorus from my church sang the national anthem. Bert Blylevin threw on his twin blue jacket and jumped in the back with all the navy blue blazers and sang the anthem with my church choir. And <laughs> the two bat, the bat boy, bat girl, honorary ones were from my hometown. Uh, my uh, Kent Herbeck brought a bouquet of flowers out to my wife, welcoming a fellow Minnesotan to the major leagues, and I got four hits.
1: Couldn't have been better, right?
0: So, And the Twins won, so the people from my town were happy because the Twins won, and I had four hits, so they (laughs) thought it was awesome. (laughs) Because their favorite team was the Twins, but their favorite player was the (laughs) Royals. That's great.
1: Well, in summary, what would you like to say in closing uh, to Royals fans listening right now?
0: Well, I'm very happy for you. I'm very happy that... The Royals have been doing well. I know this has been in the prediction level for several years because they had such a good minor league system. And I hope that they have another good three weeks here and hope they win the, the Central Division, and I hope they do well in the playoffs. And I, I just think it will be a monumental step for the players itself because you're constantly reminded – of how long it has been since your team has been in the playoffs. So you're always constantly reminded of the negative. And so it's really – but I think I think manager Yost, I got to meet him last year, and I think he does a really good job of staying on the positive. And that's what you need in this time frame is just to make sure that you're always focusing on doesn't matter what happened the last 20 years some of you guys were two years old right what does it what does it matter and this is what is the here and now so i i hope the royals finish strong and hope they do well in the playoffs and i'll be happy to watch them
1: well thanks so much for for all your time it's, it's been a really i mean inspirational story and an interesting story and all the different you know near calls you had with walking away and you know, not going to Triple A when you when you cut up for the money, and it's it's been kind of a really cool story to hear. It's refreshing, and I hope that you're right about the Royals. And we'd love to see you when you're down here in, in KC October eighteenth
0: and nineteenth. That'd be awesome. All right.
1: Well, thanks so much, and and take care.
0: Thanks, Dave. All right. Bye bye.